welcome to Conversations with Sports Fans. I'm your host, Doug Hill, and in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by author Craig Calcaterra. Craig writes a daily Substack newsletter about baseball, news, and culture entitled Cup of Coffee. We came to know Craig, however, thanks to his 2022 book, Rethinking Fandom, How to Beat the Sports Industrial Complex at Its Own Game. It's as though he were created in central casting to be a guest on Conversations with Sports Fans, don't you think? Uh, We look forward to learning about Craig's origin story and his journey as a fan. Craig, welcome to Conversations with Sports Fans. Thank you for having me. Really looking forward to this, Craig. As I said, um, you know, offline, uh, the book was fascinating, and I found myself kind of nodding in agreement many times. But before we get into that, just what are some of your earliest memories of being a sports fan? My earliest memories, uh, as we also discussed offline, I am from uh, from Michigan, and uh, I, I lived uh, in in the Flint area, but my family's all from Detroit. My my parents are not really sports people at all. My dad later came to become a football fan, but my parents aren't sports fans really at all. They weren't really brought up as sports fans. Uh, I had a great uncle, however, who lived in Detroit, who was a Tigers fan going back to, I think the twenties when he was young. And um, he had season tickets at Tiger stadium. He was a, like a car salesman and a boat salesman in Detroit. And he used that for business and things like that. And a few times a year, he would take my brother and I to Tiger Stadium. Um, I don't think that we went with him, just the two of us, until we were a little older. But I was told the first time I went to Tiger Stadium, I was about three years old. We went to a 4th of July game, maybe in 1976 or 77, somewhere in there. I don't have any memory of that at all. I do have a memory of going to see the Tigers play in the summer of 1978. Now I've written about it and I went and looked up the game and everything. And as we're sitting here right now, I'm forgetting it, but it was, it was in July. Alan Trammell hit a home run and I didn't know who Alan Trammell was. I didn't really understand baseball very well, except I kind of liked it. Um, And I just decided, well, you know, I'm four years old or something, five years old, maybe at most. I said, well, the guy who hits the home run has to be really good. So Alan Trammell is my favorite player. And it turned out that Alan Trammell then was my favorite player probably until the early 90s when I was like a late teenager. Um, and to this day, he and and then later Greg Maddox became my, my two favorite players of all time. Um, so my first memory was just being in Tiger Stadium and, and less about the game apart from the home run. Uh, I just remember, and it's going to sound so cliche, uh, people say this all the time, but it's true you probably remember Detroit in the 1970s and you probably have gone to Tiger Stadium back in the day. And we used to, because my dad was cheap, we would park the other side of I-75 and we would take that catwalk over 75. Yep. Um, and I remember just thinking, okay, I am in this crazy concrete jungle of of buildings and cars and chain link fences and, and assaulting things for my little, you know, suburban kid brain. And we got to Tiger Stadium and, you know, it's a little rough. You smell smoke, you smell beer, you see gruff guys. This was before ball games were really family experiences. And I'm getting this creeping feeling of, oh, should I be here? Should I be here again? And however, a four-year-old feels that. And then you walk in and the dark tunnel because the concourses were not open and everything else. And you come out to the tunnel and all of a sudden you see this perfect green field. And it doesn't have any reason for existing there in your little four-year-old brain. You don't know why it's there, but man, it's impressive. And the blue sky above it and and the field there, it's like a jewel box um, in ways, especially in that stadium that don't exist in other stadiums because it really wasn't open to the downtown. It really wasn't open the way modern stadiums are. It was self-contained. It was like a theater. It was like you were looking through a proscenium arch at the only thing that mattered, which was what happened on the field. Um, and in those days, by then, the, the the seats and everything were blue. This was after they had been painted and there were some renovations done. Uh, so I just remember impossible blue. Uh, I remember the, the the beams holding up the second deck. And I remember this pristine green field, which, of course, if we look back now, probably looked like garbage. It probably looked like a high school field because groundskeeping wasn't all that great in the 70s either. But that is my first sports memory. 
Wow, what a great one. And and I and yes, it's cliche, but I think we all, anyone who's ever been to an event, especially a baseball game, has that same feeling, especially if you went during that era when things were more um, enclosed and insulated from the rest of the community because it was all, always dark. I recall going mm-hmm. down to then go up, which yep. I always found unusual to go to see a baseball game that you would actually have to walk up in some capacity, especially in the lower deck. And yeah, yep. the, the green was just, it was like an emerald field. But at the same time, you're right. It probably was patchy and just gnarly and, oh, sure. and not, not the best, no matter I'll how see, good of a job they did. Yeah. I'll see highlights and stuff from like, you know, even now, the most you tend to see or you see like 1984 and stuff like that. And even then, like, the you know, the field was, wow, they would never play on that now. People would be complaining about that now. And the, the Wrigley field was the same way. I used to watch WGN games and see balls just die or hit a hole or or bounce off in weird directions because now there would be, there would be union grievances about how poor the field is. Yeah. Well, I mean, you referenced WGN and, and I know certainly um, shortly after you we got, got close to being a teenager, I think your family relocated and, and left the, the Flint area and went off into a bit of, I guess, professional sports purgatory, maybe there was yeah. not, not, not a lot there. Um, but before I get to that, though, I do yeah. want to say that, um, you know, I don't want to make it seem like I was going to Tigers games constantly. You know, I'd go to a few a year. But what really turned me into a, a sports fan after the initial grab of the ballpark was, you know, we get WJR. And yeah. uh, my mom let us listen to music at night before we went to bed. I think my brother for a couple of years there had like some nighttime issues, like he was afraid of the dark. So they let her listen to music. And, and I would flip around on a radio dial and I found... WJR and Ernie Harwell at the time he was with Paul Carey and I would listen to Tigers games every single night going to bed now it seemed like it was impossibly late I'm sure it was like nine o'clock um but I would listen to those all the time and that's what really really turned me into a baseball fan um but yes I did we moved to um in 1985 early 1985 so I did get the World Series um we moved to West Virginia my dad got transferred down to West Virginia and uh, we live there. And if you live in West Virginia, um, professional sports are sort of a catch-all thing, right? Uh, the part of West Virginia we lived in at first, a lot of people were Pittsburgh Steelers fans because it wasn't too far from Pennsylvania. Um, I didn't care about that so much. Uh, there weren't really a lot of Pittsburgh Pirates fans because in the mid-80s, the Pirates weren't anything. We would get a few Cincinnati Reds games, maybe like 40 Cincinnati Reds games a year on local TV. Uh, I didn't much care for the Reds either. Uh, in my brain, it was that's the team that gave up on Sparky Anderson. So how can they be any good? Um, but we got WGN and we got WTBS, the Superstation out of Atlanta. And so you could watch Cubs games and you could watch Braves games. And for whatever reason, I just watched more Braves games. I'm guessing it's because the programming leading into Braves games in the evening, I liked better. They showed like the old Carol Burnett show and some good sitcoms and things. And I loved that stuff when I was 10, 11 years old because I'm I've always been 70 years old mentally. So I like that kind of stuff. And then the Braves games would come on at, at the time. The, the broadcast would start at 735 and the game would start at 740. And I would just watch every Braves game because it was baseball. I didn't really have any affinity for them. I knew who Dale Murphy was, um, but that's about it. A few of the players, I knew who they were. Rick Cerrone, I think, might have been there. I knew American League players only uh, because that's how it was back then. Uh, but the few Braves players they ha- that had been in the American League at some point, I knew. And I watched them and they were terrible. Uh they, they won the division in 82. They were pretty competitive in 83. They went downhill in 84. And then they just kind of cratered in 85 until 91. So, of course, those were my prime Braves watching years, 1985 to through 1990. And then I went away to college in 91. Um, and I watched them every single game. They broadcast 144 games a year on WTBS. And I would bet that I watched 130 of them at least. Um, and I just got hooked. And it didn't matter that they didn't win. In fact, it was more fun when they didn't win in hindsight. When they started winning in 91, I was like super, super excited. Uh, but it was more fun that they didn't win. It was just about the experience and the ritual of watching the game. This is what I do. This is how I follow it. I got into computer simulations for baseball then too. And it'd be like, so this is where the stats go. This is how this works. This And I, I came to get just a very, very deep understanding and appreciation for baseball in those 104 loss Braves years. 
Uh, you you referenced maybe the programming that led into the Braves games being a factor, but would it also have been a factor that WGN, especially during the months of April and May and September, October, because the Cubs at the time were still primarily playing day games, that that didn't necessarily align with your school schedule, I'm guessing? Yeah, that was part of it. Now, I, I remember coming home from school and you could catch the Cubs game because they started an hour behind. They're in the yeah. central time zone. So I think the game started at like 2 and I was home from school a little after three, I think. And so you could watch most of the day games, but it just kind of wasn't happening. Like I was going to go out and play with friends or I was going to do other things. Um, I didn't really have time just to myself where I wasn't really going to be outside doing stuff as much um, until the evening. But yeah, I'm sure the day game situation had a lot to do with it. Um, at the time, I don't remember thinking, oh, the Cubs aren't convenient. I just, it just, you do what you do and you find yourself watching the Braves games. But yeah, I'm sure that had a lot to do with it. Yeah. And and you referenced just, I don't want to say a comedy of errors, but yeah, those Braves teams were not very competitive. Um, and, and like you, I was a, a big Dale Murphy fan. And he, for me, was really the only reason to tune in. But, but I mean, there were other reasons, obviously, well, as well, because you're a fan. But, um, you know, talk to us about what what you feel like hooked you beyond the fact that you just like baseball and it was your only real opportunity to see it where you were located. What else hooked you about those teams? Um, I, I don't want to overstate this and I don't think this is a clinical situation, but I was kind of depressed in those years. Like I was, I wasn't like a sad sack little kid. I was generally happy, but you know, we had moved away from the only place that I lived and, um, and I got to, you know, get friends and I, I was a happy kid generally in school and I did well and everything, but it was definitely, there's this feeling after we moved of, you know, I don't necessarily belong. There's a culture shock when you moved to West Virginia from Michigan. Um, and at least, especially at first, like in the first season in 85, I was kind of sad and I wasn't, you know, really doing very well with it. And watching the Braves lose all the time kind of made me feel good. It was like, they suck too. My life sucks. They, their life sucks. And this is, this is, this is terrible. And Skip Carey, the, the TV commentator for the Atlanta Braves, was the best guy to broadcast a losing team because he didn't he didn't sugarcoat it. He had broadcast good teams. He had broadcast Hank Aaron. He had broadcast, you know, the division winning 82 team. He knew what good baseball was and he'd been watching bad baseball and he didn't like it. And he was funny. And, you know, just I remember him, you know, the bases are loaded and I wish I was, you know, things like that. It was funny. The, the whole idea of there's something not very good going on, but we're going to make the best of it or we're going to make fun of it was just appealed to me like crazy. And so, uh, I, you know, Dale Murphy's easy to love because he was a superstar. And for a while, they're Bob Horner the same way. And once in a while, they get a pitcher that came through that was pretty decent, you know. But I like guys like Andres Thomas. Andres Thomas was the brave shortstop of the future. And unfortunately for him, the future never came. He might have been the worst everyday Major League Baseball player in my lifetime. And as far as one who actually had a starting job for multiple years, he was terrible on offense and he made up for it with horrible defense. It, it was it was just not a good player. But I I felt so many things for Andres Thomas because you knew he was trying. You knew that that. Every step of the way until he got to the major leagues, he was a star or else he wouldn't have made it. And then all of a sudden he's terrible. And since he's on the worst team in baseball, you know, at least he has a job. And so I would identify with guys like Andres Thomas and uh, they would get they got one year. They got a, a guy from the Mexican League named Geronimo Barroa, starting pitcher. Um, and it was one of those things. They were trying everything because nothing was working for them. So let's go get him. No one was doing that. then. it wasn't like a thing that happened very often. You might see one veteran Mexican League player come into the major leagues every couple of years, maybe. And the Braves were trying it because they didn't know what they were doing. And it was that element that really, really appealed to me. Um, and, and I think what really, I've been watching them for a couple of years at this point, but we lived in one town in West Virginia from 85 until early 88. And in 1988, we moved to another town in West Virginia about, uh, I don't know, 120 miles away or something on a different part of the state, the deep Southern part of the state it was a very, very Appalachian kind of place. Now it ended up being where I graduated high school and I loved it. It's Beckley, West Virginia. And that's where I tell people I'm from because I ended up loving it there. Um, but at the time it was terrible and we moved I think during the week of opening day, 1988, it was in April, 1988. 
And I not only moved, but we moved to a hotel because we got relocated. We didn't find a house yet. So my dad's employer put the family up in a hotel and my brother and I had a sad hotel room. And I was, even though I knew nobody and I had no social life, I was grounded because like I had a going away party up in my old town and we got in trouble. And then so I'm, I, it's everything was terrible that week. And that was the year that the Braves started out like 0-14. They got overshadowed because that was the year the Orioles started out like 0-21 or whatever. But the Braves were like with them like crazy. And we were watching a game and it was a young Tom Glavin in his first full year uh, was pitching, I think, in Dodger Stadium night game. I'm sitting in my sad hotel room watching this and a, a ground ball goes to second base and there was an error or something. It was just an ugly play by a bad team. Ozzie Virgil was the catcher for the Braves. He walks out to the mound. They have a mound meeting. Glavin looks like a deer in the headlights because he wasn't Tom Glavin yet. The infielders come in. Ozzie Virgil starts yelling at everybody because he's just disgusted with his teammates at this point for being idiots. And they were just barking and sad and skip carry couldn't even sugarcoat this he's like this is bad folks this is not what could be happening and i'm laughing my ass off i was like this is what it's all about these people are miserable i am miserable i'm gonna ride with this team and the 1988 braves were so bad i think that was the worst team in that whole run i think they lost like 106 games maybe 108 i watched almost every single game that year and i absolutely loved it because they were terrible if there's anyone in the world who is not going to be a front runner who is not going to let his sports fandom ride based on wins and losses damn it it's me wow what a um a wonderful recollection and a um a fine tribute to a rather poor team uh, <laughs> the fact that there is there is at least one out there who lived and died essentially with every pitch um and uh, good on you for that i think but um, you, you referenced, I think, that in 91, you went off to college or somewhere around there. Yeah, fall in 91. Yeah, about, about the time the Braves began to, you know, ascend. Um, did you, did you, they follow you to college or did that kind of they, slowly they, go away? They did. Um, but it was interesting. So, you know, the dynamic, everybody knows the dynamic of a baseball fan. You love it when you're a kid and then it sort of gets away from you a little bit in your young adolescent, in your like, late teens into your 20s and then you come back to it really really full i never left it really but there were a few years where it was a little less and that actually started in 91 because um you know that was the year i graduated high school i turned 18 the girl i started dating in my senior year of high school in early 91 was the girl who ended up becoming the wife and the mother of my children um so i was definitely thinking of other things that summer more so than anything else i was ride or die in 1990 when we were hoping nick asaski would come back from vertigo because of course that happens to the braves you've signed a big free agent he gets a vertigo for crying out loud so in 91 i'm watching i'm still watching a lot obviously and they're winning and kind of crazy and i'm waiting for the bottom to drop out and never dropped out but at the same time i'm i'm dating and i'm thinking about college and moving and things like that but i was watching and that fall i went to ohio state and that fall, uh, we didn't have a TV in our room. Nobody had cable in the dorms yet. Um, but the playoffs were still on uh, on over-the-air TV. And there was mm -hmm. one TV in like the common area of my dorm room. And I watched the whole playoffs and the World Series that year on that. I did miss the John Smoltz-Jack Morris Game 7 in 1991 visually. Um, I had gone away for the weekend. I think that game was a Sunday night. And I uh, I'd gone back to West Virginia to visit my girlfriend who was still in high school back then. And coming back, I listened to it on the radio. And so I didn't get to see it, but it was pretty exciting on the radio too. My mom had recorded it on VCR and like sent me the tape. So I did get to watch it later, but um, they stayed with me, but you know, you start to drift a little bit. It was great. I loved it. I mean, I, I wish they had won in 91. I obviously watched the world series in 92 and most of the season to the extent I could. Uh, I was a lot more following on the radio and, and things like that, because again, I didn't have easy access to cable. Um, but as the 90s went on, and they won all the time, and they won the division every year, and they went to the World Series like five times, and they won it in 95. Um, I was still a very, what everybody in the world would describe as a hardcore baseball fan, but compared to what I am now, and compared to what I was when I was a kid, probably less than I ever was. Hmm. And when I did watch them and appreciate them, I, I obviously love them. I mean, I was quoted in those years in John Sherholtz, the general managers uh, of the Braves. He wrote a memoir in the early 2000s. And I was anonymously quoted because he took 
hate messages off of an internet message board or something. And I had written something very notorious on a, on a Braves message board about some trade they made or something like that. That was way over the top. And I've since apologized for it It was terrible. It wasn't like kind of thing that will get you canceled. I didn't, you know, like wish him Mm -hmm. death or anything like that. But, um, you know, I was the example of a, of a crazed fan who didn't understand how the world worked. According to John Sherholtz. I I love that book, by the way, I still have it and have my, my little quote dog-eared. So I was still obviously a huge baseball fan, but it wasn't as fun for me in some ways um when the Braves won every year it was sort of like okay they're good and then you have these weird expectations and you start to get upset if they don't win a series as opposed to have it be exciting um you start to get disappointed at a playoff loss as opposed to wow we made the playoffs um so it was still a lot of fun and I still enjoyed it and I obviously would rather see my team win than lose but um it wasn't quite the same for some reason. And maybe it's just because I was getting older and nothing's the same when you're older as when yeah. you're a kid. But that's always been the case for me in, in a lot of ways. Um, I, I I was a huge Ohio State football fan um, after I went there. And for many years after I, I now, as I wrote in the book, I, I don't follow football at all anymore for a number of reasons. But I was a pretty obsessive Ohio State football fan from the early 90s until about 2010, 11, somewhere in there. And uh, it's a chore to be an Ohio State football fan. You might know that as Michigan fans. I'm sure you know a ton of Michigan fans that are this way. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost a chore because it's not good enough that you win. You got to win by 30 if you're playing that Mac team early in the season. And uh, it's not good enough that you win 11 games if you drop one to Michigan. Or it's, uh, you know, it's it, it, the expectations are so high and the disappointment is so huge for what anyone else would kill for. It's it's a job to be a fan of a winning team in some ways, and an often unpleasant one in hindsight. So I don't know. I like losing. It's kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, is that does the premise for rethinking fandom start? Um, you know, when you realize that it is becoming a bit more of a job to be a fan. I know that it didn't come necessarily fruition until 2022 when it's published. But do the do the kernels begin to kind of you know set? set uh, set up shop in your head back in the mid 90s late 90s into the early 2000s uh absolutely uh maybe a little later than that but the the general ideas behind the book um were forming during all those years i don't know if there was ever one crystallization moment but you know the general idea of the book is sports are fun sports is entertainment if if it is instilling negative emotions in you maybe you need to question you know what you're doing and it's not one of those don't be a sports fan book and it's not the oh, sports of oh, sports balls dumb look at the look at the man with the hand egg in the super bowl you know i'm not that guy i love sports i've made sports my living i think sports are a good positive thing um i, I think they form communities i think they they you know psychological studies that i cite in the book have shown that people who actually have sports fandom tend to be generally happier well-adjusted people um because it's an outlet it's something for them but the idea of it being miserable or making you angry or sad or bringing you out of your life for a while, that's a bit too much for me. I, I certainly can't do that. Uh, I, I, if there was one moment that I look back on in hindsight that was huge was um, my girlfriend and I, now my wife, uh, were going out to dinner here in Columbus. Uh, this would have been about 2012, maybe. I don't know. 2013. We went to this restaurant. It was sort of spur of the moment. It was a Saturday night, and it's a restaurant that's really crowded all the time. And uh, we didn't think we'd get, be able to get a table. It was kind of dumb, us, dumb of us to even go because it was a real hot place. But we figured, well, we'll try. And we walked in there, and the place was half empty. I had no idea. We sat down at the bar, and we ordered some food and a drink, and we started talking to the bartender. Why is the place so empty? And he points over to the TV that's behind the bar, and Ohio State lost, was losing a game. I think it was to Iowa. Um, it was a game they should have won one of those years when they were, you know, on their way to being a national champion, but they, they always would dump one to Iowa or Purdue or Michigan state or something. And, uh, he said that when Ohio state loses a game like this, it was like the three thirty game. So this was, you know, like six thirty seven o'clock when they lose a game like this, people cancel reservations. Now this is Columbus and Columbus is a, a very obsessive Ohio state town, of course, but I, I, I couldn't believe it. I said, Really? And this was a couple of years after I sort of dropped being an Ohio State fan. I sort of gave it up for reasons I explained in the book. Um, 
And it, it just was insane to me that you would have plans to go out to this great restaurant with maybe your wife, maybe a family, maybe, you know, some friends and you just cancel it because you're mad at a football game. A bunch of 20 year olds didn't perform to your expectations or odds makers expectations. And now I'm going to ruin my evening and my family's evening because of it by canceling my plans. He said it happens all the time. And I've, since then I've noticed it, it does happen. And it just dawned on me. I'm like, that's no way to live. That That's, that's horrible. I mean, sports should enhance your life. Sports should be some fun things you do in your life, not something that like controls your life and potentially makes it stupid. Um, so that idea I've sort of been watching for a while of, you know, the internet helps with this too. Well, helps, hurts, whatever, of seeing negative fandom. I, I've been a professional writer on the internet since 2009. So I, you know, I have comment sections and I have reader feedback and things. And just seeing sort of the hostility and the venom and the negativity. And some of that is just sort of magnified because it's the internet and it's a little over the top, but I, I can tell the real core of it there among some people when sports are really making you miserable. And my, my general thought then, and it took a few years to fester into this book was sports should not make you miserable. And if they are making you miserable, you need to rethink your fandom. And that's where that came from. So the subtitle is how to beat the sports industrial complex. I think I have a concept of what that is, but there may be a, a handful of listeners on this podcast who don't understand what the sports industrial complex is. If you could give us a, a little overview on, on what you mean by that, I think it would be helpful. Sure. Yeah. Um, the, the book isn't just a self-help book about how you should feel better about sports. It's also there's a heavy dose in there that mm. I've learned over the years of being, you know, following the industry behind sports a lot. The media, the leagues, business interests, now gambling interests. There are there is this whole superstructure that sort of runs sports Um and and runs because of sports uh, that is separate and apart from just a sports fan enjoying a game. Uh, ESPN, Nike, uh, BetMGM, Rob Manfred and Major League Baseball, Roger Goodell and the National Football League, every sponsor you can imagine, all the networks, um, they all make billions on sports. They broadcast it, they produce it, they manage it, they make money off of it. And in so many ways, that sort of dictates the experience of sports in the 21st century. Now, it's unavoidable. You can't watch a game if you don't have the network on which the game appears. Uh, if there is not a league, there there is nothing to watch. Um, if there is not a guy who owns the Detroit Tigers, the Detroit Tigers aren't there, right? I mean, that stuff is part of a fact of life. Um. But they, I think, certainly have gotten outsized power now. Um, sports has ceased to be, I, it always has been a business. I'm not naive. I'm not going to say that, you know, sports was once this pastoral, wonderful thing that people only did for fun, because that's not true. People like to say that. Old timers like to say that about when they were kids, but that never existed. It didn't exist 150 years ago when when baseball was new. Um, but there certainly was a time where the balance was a little better. And now it is a multi-billion dollar industry. And so much of it is designed to take advantage of fans, preys on fans' loyalty and fans' sports obsession in such a way that they take advantage of us. Um, and I think that's a net negative. Uh, and so a lot of the book I spend talking about, just trying to identify, look, here is how business and sports are taking advantage of you. Here is how they are leveraging your genuine, genuinely felt passion for your team or for the sport you love and using it in a way to exploit you, to take money out of your pocket that is over and above just what you'd pay for a ticket or something. Um, and so I talk about those things and about how you can still be a sports fan without being a part of that necessarily. I mean, you can't go live on an island and 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 isolate yourself from it, but you can minimize the amount of exploitation, the sports industrial complex. And I just ripped that term off from Dwight Eisenhower <laughs> and the military industrial complex. But um, you can be a sports fan without falling prey to all that. And uh, the second half of the book especially talks about that. Um, and, and so I just, it, it's maybe it's a bit of a pipe dream. I, I'm not, I'm not expecting a fan revolution 
or anything like that. I a friend of mine is uh, Will Leach, who he used to run Deadspin years and years ago, but he he now is a columnist for like New York Magazine. He writes books and things, but he's been a sports commentator for a long time. And many years ago, he wrote a book called like God Save the Fan and how fans can take sports back. And uh, it was a great book, but it was completely that's not a thing that's going to happen. I I don't believe that fans can stand up and and beat the sports industrial complex. But what we can do as individual fans is not make our sports fandom dependent on that and not feed the beast any more than it needs to be fed. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're even in the last couple of weeks, it's interesting times in terms of, I mean, you've seen a lot of it come to fruition. You have um, the New York Times telling the sports department that it no longer exists. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to shutter that. We have whole Oakland A's, um, you know, Las Vegas, what it's going to be um, squabble going on that comes to an even bigger head now that we have the mayor of Oakland going up for a meeting with with the commissioner of baseball. And, you know, we still have, you know, the whole live golf PGA tour thing, you know, kind of coming down the pike. Um, when, when you reference, you know, kind of um, the whole sports um, ecosystem kind of praying or taking advantage of, of us as fans. Can you give us an example of one or two things that you would, you mean by that, whether it be, you know, the tax abatements to build new stadiums. I mean, mean, shoot, your, your Atlanta Braves, I think have had three stadiums in the last, what, 40 years. I didn't know that these things were disposable now, but apparently they are. (laughs) Um, And, you know, but, but give us a couple of examples of what you mean by that. Uh, the stadium thing is a huge one. That's one that's a particular hobby horse of mine. I have a I have a friend who also is a Braves fan. We met through Braves fandom, who is a, a sports economics professor uh, in in the Atlanta area at a university in the Atlanta area. J.C. Bradbury is his name, and he's the foremost expert in the country on sports stadium financing. And what he particularly studies is the economic impacts of publicly funded sports stadiums. Every time a new stadium comes around or one is planned, they will say, okay, taxpayers, it's time for you to build us a stadium. And the first question might be, why should we build you a stadium private business? And the answer is always, because this will be great for the community. It'll be great economic. The benefits will be huge. It'll be millions and billions of dollars for the city. That actually doesn't happen. Um they certainly make the 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 owner of the team very rich. The stadium's very pretty. It might it might pretty up one part of the the city that needed it or something. Um, like I I I used to go to Detroit when I was a kid and it was kind of a mess. And you go to a ball game now and you're walking up Woodward and it's like wow this is amazing. You've got the football stadium and the baseball stadium and and the the new arena and look at all these bars and these restaurants and these nice hotels and there's the the streetcar and it's gorgeous it's fantastic this has to be because of these stadiums well no not necessarily it looks like it but the studies show that that stuff actually just takes it robs peter to pay paul and so resources that went into building comerica park or ford field for example uh were taken away from other things um and it was transferred to turn into like a playground for suburbanites, people coming in from, you know, Livonia or whatever and enjoying the Tigers games. It's not the city of Detroit. Um, And Detroit might be a bad example because off the top of my head, I'm not sure about what the funding was, but Atlanta is a great example of that. And a lot of other cities are too. And so that one's just, it it really bothers me. So I'm very adamantly against publicly funded stadiums because, you know, if a car dealer said, I want to build a new car dealership on the corner, you wouldn't, taxpayers wouldn't pay for that. It's just his business. And so we're doing that as fans and they leverage, that's a great example of them leveraging our passion because the idea is, you know, the Texas Rangers wanted a new stadium and they go to the city of Arlington and they say, you know, if you don't build us another new stadium, I know you just built us one in the nineties, but if you don't build us another one, we're going to go to Dallas and you don't want us to go to Dallas because it's like 30 miles away and you won't see these games anymore. Um, So you you better pass this tax bill and, and pay for our stadium and they do it. Because they don't want to lose them. Cowboys, a better example. You know, when you're going to lose the Cowboys, you're going to really screw people up. Um, the Oakland A's tried to do that. Like, hey, give us a bunch of money uh, or we're leaving. And well, they did leave because generally Oakland had called their bluff. Not as much as they should have, but they did. Um, and that's a, that's a great example. It's like the example of using sports fans' passions uh, to enrich themselves um, you know, and, and, you know, emotionally manipulate us. Uh, there are a lot of ways they do that. And so that one really bothers me. Uh, 
there there are others as well. There are things that I don't want to get too political on here just because, you know, this is it's it's a Saturday. We're we're having fun. But, you know, there are ways in which leagues take political positions. Um, they align themselves with with certain causes or not. The Colin Kaepernick stuff uh, from several years ago, we're all aware of uh, it, it's it's really can be toxic um, when when sports sort of and I'm not the guy who says stick to sports. I the last guy, in fact, who would say sports should only be sports. But when sports does get away from putting an entertaining product on the field for people, uh, they are just as prone to criticism as anybody else. And uh, we should watch what these very powerful and influential institutions do, just like we would try to watch any powerful institution. Yeah. Um, you referenced the the latter part of your, your book. I think it was split into two parts. Um Part one was about the modern fandom. Part two was just about how to be a fan in the 21st century. Um, and you and you have, I think, five different options for us as, as fans moving forward. Um, I'm intrigued by, I guess, the one that talks about rooting for players. Because yes. I um, I wake up every morning now, and I, again, living in, in the Eastern time zone, I don't get to see a lot of Angels games, but I do wake up every morning and and go immediately to see what Shohei Otani does because I'm a fan. Um, I, I think what he's doing is rather incredible. And I know that it there's varying degrees to, you know, whether how incredible it actually is, but I know I haven't seen it in my lifetime because nobody's either been given the opportunity or nobody's been capable of doing it. So I'm really intrigued by that. But is, is that what you mean by maybe identifying specific players or participants in some of these athletic competitions that we just gravitate towards and just follow them exclusively? Or do you mean something else by that? And that's part of it. That's certainly a big part of it. Um, I, I think my initial thought of that is how do you deal with the era of free agency? How do you deal with the fact that your team's owner for, and I always talk about baseball because that's what I know the best, but you know, your team's owner decides he doesn't want to up the payroll uh, and he's letting guys go. Uh, the pirates were an example. I used this for years. They're doing a little better this year. So it's a little harder, but you know, the pirates had a lot of good players. Garrett Cole came up with the pirates uh, the first time Andrew McCutcheon, a lot of other players did. Um, and you love this team. And then all of a sudden the owner's just like, nah, I don't feel like paying for these players. And they take off. And for many years, the idea, the media was complicit in this, I think, of saying, oh, those greedy players are leaving. You you should remain a Pittsburgh Pirates fan and screw those greedy players who who don't have the loyalty that you have. That's crazy. Um, I know the economics of baseball very well. The Pittsburgh Pirates could have kept Garrett Cole around. They just didn't want to pay him. And so they traded him. Uh, do, do I not like Garrett Cole anymore? Or do I get mad at Bob Nutting, who owns the Pittsburgh Pirates. And, you know, one thing you could do, and it's a bit of a hybrid thing, because he still might want to see your Pirates do well. But when Garrett Cole went to the Astros, you could root for him. You could root for Garrett Cole. And now he's on the Yankees. Hey, I remember when that guy was a kid. And, and you could still want to see him do well. And since we can now see games from almost any team if we want to, it's really easy to do that. Like, if you're a Pirates fan, and you're still mad at Bob Nutting for getting rid of Garrett Cole. And tonight the Pirates are playing some West Coast game and you don't want to stay up for it. Turn on a Yankees game and watch Garrett Cole and hope he does well. Those, those are things you can do. And that sort of came to me as an idea, you know, because I became a sports writer. And I, I'm a bit of a different sports writer. I don't have to be objective. I, none of When I work for NBC and now that I work for myself, I don't have to have the Associated Press sort of approach and and not weigh in at all. I could say, man, screw that guy. Or, oh, yeah, I'm so happy this team won. And I do it all the time. But I also kind of make a point to watch a lot of different games and a lot of different teams rather than just one. Um, and it's amazing how fun it can be to turn on a game. And I think we do this in football a lot and, and maybe in basketball. We don't do it in baseball as much. You just turn on a game between two teams and just decide as you're watching who you want to win and decide based on who's playing in the game or who's pitching that day, which game you want to watch. And, and you get a great deal of enjoyment. Like you said, you could watch Shohei Otani one night because he's amazing and you want to see him play or, or at least follow what he did. Um, your team stinks this year. I don't really feel like watching my team. They're a, they're a drag. So I'm going to watch the other team a lot more. Um, the, the one chapter in there that's, that flows with this, that really pissed everybody off when I, name the, the chapter for it and my publisher put it out as like a preview teaser of it it was it's okay to be a fair weather fan yeah. that is that is like some line that 
sports fans will tell you you can't cross and people will punch you out in a bar if you say that um but no it's absolutely legitimate you could totally be a fair weather fan uh i think the example i used in the book was the minnesota timberwolves who with the exception of a couple of years when kevin garnett was there were basically bad for like two decades you're in minnesota you love the nba and they're just awful and they don't try and they, they're not getting good players and it's just and they're not even you know converting lottery picks into into exciting players for a long time there why do you have to support these guys i mean it's it's not like your country or your wife or something you're not like you know declaring war or or you know calling for a divorce you're just saying you know what I'm not going to care what the Minnesota Timberwolves do until they're actually interesting and worthy of my of my attention. Um, there's nothing wrong with doing that at all. Uh, I got really disenchanted with the Braves several years ago for a bunch of reasons. Part of it was when they moved their stadium to the suburbs. Part of it was some business things and some things their ownership did. And I just sort of wasn't watching the Braves much. And at the same time, my my kids, for random, random reasons, became kind of Dodgers fans they didn't really even understand baseball very much but I had a Dodgers game on they thought the colors were great they thought one of the players was really exciting and so they wanted to know everything they wanted to know about the Dodgers so I would turn on Dodgers games I didn't become a Dodgers fan necessarily but I watched them more and I wanted to see them win it didn't mean I didn't care about the Braves but they were far more interesting to me at the time and so that just sort of plus was a thing my kids cared about. So I was sharing it with my kids. It was a much more positive, fun experience than watching a, a Braves rebuild. Now, it turned out to be a great rebuild, but at the time it was a drag. Um, you can do that. There's no law that says that once, you know, if you were, I'm a great example. I was born a Tigers fan, apparently, but you can change that because you move or because a number of reasons. I think that's a completely legitimate way to follow sports. Most people don't agree with me on that, but there's a lot more fun to be had if you're a promiscuous sports fan. There you go. Yeah. And, you know, I probably example a here where I live is, you know, I, if you're a lion, if you live in Detroit, you better have a, a plan B for the lions because for many years, the lions did nothing but disappoint. Now this coming season, it may be a little bit different. Maybe I'll be on the bandwagon, but yeah, there was always another team that I was interested in or watching. And for many years, it was the Denver Broncos because I had a friend who lived there and I was able to go to a game once and in a game a mile high. It was pretty cool. Yada, yada, yada. Um, but it was you. I think you need to have that. And, and the single greatest thing that I ever did was what well, it must have been eight years ago now for Lent. I decided I was giving up sports talk radio. That's yeah, that's actually a great idea. <laughs> and I've, ne I've never been back and I've never been happier. Because I don't have to listen to that. I mean, if I if I see, you know, I, we're trying to be polite here, but if I see Stephen A. Smith end up on my screen at some point for whatever reason, I will change the station because I don't need to hear well, the. What does he the, add? The, the, he, nothing, in my estimation. It, sport, successful sports. So I, when I worked at NBC, they would have me go on sports talk radio a lot, or they would. We had a studio show for a while, and they would bring me on there, and it didn't really work well. I, I don't do well in that setting because. I'm one of those guys who thinks the world is endlessly complex and I don't say really pithy things that that do well on sports talk radio, but they they traffic in negativity, right? They, yeah. they want to make you angry. If you're angry, that's like the most positive motivating emotion is anger. Um, unfortunately, I don't mean positive in a good way, but it's like the way that affirmatively makes you do something or commit to something is anger. And so if especially local sports talk radio, they, they want to tell you, you know, I, I'm going to date myself terribly here just because I'm coming up with an example. Eric Hipple is a bum and they'll never win with Eric Hipple as the quarterback. Well, I'm like, okay, fine. But like, you know, Eric Hipple had some good games. He was all right. I liked him better than Gary Danielson. There's a, no, no, no. Yeah. Eric Hipple is a bum. And if you don't believe it, screw you. You're not a real Lions fan. I mean, that's generally what it boils down to. Now I'm going to go back and look and see if Eric Hipple was a bum or not. I can't remember. I, I liked him. But that whole idea, it's very reductionist. And it's very, you know, you're with us or against us, or that guy is either a hero or he's the worst ever. Uh, sometimes in the same week, he's both, yeah. um, you know, or, or you, or now it's become, you have to say the most outlandish things possible. Uh, LeBron James isn't very good. I mean, Skip Bayless has made a mini career out of that. It's, it's a facially ridiculous thing to say but it gets people angry or it gets people nodding or whatever. And that's what it's all about. And that's just, 
you don't need that. There, there's nothing in your life. I've come to the point where I just turn on games when the games start, not when the pregame starts. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't watch the studio shows. I don't do any of that because I care about the game. Um, I know there's a whole industry now about talking about the game, and I'm probably part of it. I write about it. But um, if I want to watch a baseball game, I want to see the first pitch. I don't want to hear A-Rod and Derek Jeter talking about it on Fox Sports for you know however long. Um, you can do that. You absolutely can do that. Yeah. You know, the other one of the other items you you talk about here was um supporting activism. And I know that we're, you know, I, I don't pride myself on being apolitical, but we haven't, you know, plumbed a lot of political things here. But the example you use is Colin Kaepernick, I think, in, in there. But um, there are many other athletes as activists. Is is that something that you find yourself doing more and more that maybe you align yourself with an athlete? Or was this just a, a premise that you wanted to put forward to provide another lane for a person to be a fan in the 21st century? I mean, kind of both, I guess. I, I you know, I, I have my own political leanings. I tend to be more liberal than your average sports fan. And I get very obnoxious about that sometimes. I try not to be, but you know, everybody's obnoxious if you get too political about anything. Um, I think where this came from was I really started to understand and appreciate like team ownership and league ownership. And it really crystallized a lot when I started to become a soccer fan a couple of years ago. Um, You know, when the government of Saudi Arabia buys your team, um, that's got to be difficult. (laughs) Okay. I mean, I don't even think that's a liberal conservative issue. It's just like, okay, literally a guy who murdered a journalist now owns Newcastle. Okay. Can you be a Newcastle fan? Well, sure. A lot of people can. You can sort of divorce that if you want to. I'm not going to tell you, you can't be. Um, But for me personally, it's kind of hard for me to like things like that or to get behind it. I mean, there there are certain owners in major league baseball who I think they'd be deal breakers for me if, if that was my team. Um, but what I, I do like is I, I like athletes or sometimes owners or sometimes executives do it too. Some do, um, when they talk about things that interest me, right. I mean, again, I'm not a stick to sports guy, but I admire, uh, an athlete who stands up for something that isn't necessarily just the game. It's brave for one thing, because they are putting their livelihoods on the line. We know how sports fans are. Sports fans tend to skew a little more conservative. Sports fans tend to not want to hear things like that. So you are really risking your livelihood by uh, being an activist, especially Mm -hmm. a progressive activist of some kind. Um, I admire that bravery. Uh, Oftentimes I agree with the issues, but even if I don't, I admire the bravery. Um, and there's something to be said about an athlete who understands that there's more important things in the world than just the sport they play. Um, you know, everybody can come up with the idea, you know, Muhammad Ali, for example, uh, there, there's always been someone like that, that, that is, you know, you, I admire their athletic prowess first and foremost, because that's why we tune in and that's why we watch them. Uh, but when you see someone who has greater depths to them, especially if, they take risks. And especially if they put themselves on the line for something, I think that is absolutely admirable. Um, not everybody cares about that stuff. I don't expect everybody to. Uh, but that's, that, as you said, that's an avenue that someone who might, you, you might not like the fact that the NFL stands for certain things in the world or the Premier League stands for certain things in the world. But there are athletes who push back from inside, tend to be star athletes because those are the ones who have the most power to do it. Um, but that's just another way to appreciate uh, sports. You don't have to. You can you can completely go into sports and not care a lick about any of that. And if that's what makes you happy, that's great. Because the whole point of this is to be happy. To be happy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking and hearing a Bobby McFerrin song in my head right now. So, but <laughs> it's kind of true. Speaking of dating ourselves, right? Um, it, you know, a lot of what we've talked about now has been relating to team sports that certainly is i think probably where both of our interests lie early on and that's where we kind of grew up in that in that environment but is there something to be said i mean you talked about rooting for specific athletes or what have you is there something to be said now to maybe looking at tennis or golf or auto sports maybe not to that extent but some of those sports that are a little more individual in nature and maybe fixating on that because it maybe does bring us more joy and we don't have to get caught up in some of the other pieces that go along with it. 
I, I think there's definitely something to that. I didn't really write about that in the book, but th that's a that's a really streamlined way to think about it. I mean, some of the most interesting athletes, and I was a huge, it, it, especially when I was a kid and really into the 90s, I was that kid who had ESPN 24-7. I could tell you when I was 14 years old, I could tell you who the top 20 tennis players in order were on both the men's and women's side. I could tell you the golfers. I could, I, I knew all that stuff. I knew every boxer. It, it was crazy. I didn't have a life. Um, but there is something really admirable about just when you're one one athlete on the line like that. Now they have sponsorships, obviously, and and things like that. So it's it's never completely clean. There's not going to be some white knight shining in the in the distance. But um, you know, seeing tennis players, uh, I think tennis might be the best example of it, just because there are some athletes in tennis who just do not give a crap what you think, and it's great. I mean. Uh, Serena Williams has been a recent example of that not that recent actually again dating myself but um, there are a lot of there are a lot of tennis players that were like that uh, and that still are there are some golfers I don't follow golf at all now but I know there are I, I like hearing the ones that are talking about the uh, about the recent merger um, but uh, yeah again the the basic unit of measurement in sports as far as I'm concerned is the athlete um, not the brand that happens to be the laundry that the team is wearing. Yeah. Um, we all say we root for a team. We do because it's convenient. But the basic unit of measurement, as far as I'm concerned, is an athlete. They're the ones who do things. And I like to see athletes doing athletic things. I like to see athletes doing heroic things. And I like to see athletes doing admirable things. And if I can get that package in one, that's amazing. It's rare, but it's amazing. Yeah, which is probably why I'll be rooting for Rory McIlroy in the Open. Exactly. In a week or yeah. so because, you know, he, activist, yeah, he was pretty and has been pretty vocal against the merger. Um, he's kind of resigned to it now, I think, but he certainly was one of the people that put himself out there against it. Um, you know, he's, you know, infinitely talented and, and, you know, able to see him come as close as he did at the u.s open i, I will be pulling for him in another it's week about or the so principles yeah right for, for it, you don't have to even agree with that sort of thing that's you know i i like what he has to say about that stuff because that's the side i happen to fall yeah. on but if there's a principled athlete out there um you know it, and it doesn't have to be political i i think of sandy koufax in the 1965 yeah. world series or 66 world series not pitching on yom kippur and it has nothing to do with politics that's his religion um and someone who is so principled that they are willing to sacrifice that uh sacrifice sports for what they truly believe in that's over the top and and whether it's you know him and Judaism or an athlete and, and Christianity or something. It's if there's a principle that you value and an athlete embodies that principle, that's 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 amazing. Root for that guy or that yeah, woman. Absolutely. Um, we've spent a lot of time talking about professional athletics to this point. You've touched on Ohio State a little bit, but I would love to get some of your thoughts on college athletics, especially at the at the highest level, Division One, kind of writ large. How you're feeling about that in this new era that we live in with nil and transfer portals and whatever else we can talk about and then i'd also love to hear about it from more of that you know is there a place for me as a fan at the smaller college level where that brings me the kind of joy without all of the other stuff that maybe has to come along with it well first i'll say that i went to ohio state obviously you know ohio state is what it is um my daughter is getting ready to start her sophomore year in college. She is at the University of Vermont. Okay. And for Christmas, she got my father, her grandfather, a t-shirt that says University of Vermont football undefeated since 1974. <laughs> That's the year they ceased having a football program. Yeah. It's a very different thing that my daughter is going through than what I'm going through. I think Vermont has a pretty decent hockey history and, and they have a basketball team and they might play baseball, but it's, Athletics are not important there. <laughs> um, I, in some ways, I'll say lucky, I guess. I don't know. I checked out of college sports as a fan before the NIL stuff happened. Uh, as I wrote in the book, it really happened in like 2000, between 2009 and 2011. I found myself just being the most wrapped up, insane, Big Ten football fan you could imagine. I was on message boards. I was... 
gatekeeping casual fans. I was the guy who knew everybody in the recruiting pipeline and would get mad if they only won 56 to 12 instead of 56 to three. I, I was that guy and I hated that guy and I stopped being that guy. And the only way I at the time found that I could do it was to completely go cold Turkey and back out. <clears throat> and I never went back. I thought, well, I'd, I'd go back to Ohio state football, but I never did. And I don't miss it. Um, so I've watched the NIL stuff and I've watched the increasing transfers and all that kind of stuff that happened and the the power that has gone to the athletes as opposed to the institutions and the coaches. I love it intellectually. Um, I know that it creates a mess. I, I understand that. And I understand that there's so much passion tied up in college sports. Excuse me. I'm sorry. That's okay. I understand that there's so much passion tied up in college sports that it can be difficult for, you know, a hardcore Ohio state or Michigan fan or something or Alabama fan or whatever to appreciate that this athlete now can just leave or that he's here only for the money because we are so conditioned, especially in college sports to be about the tradition and the, and the emotion and everything. So I understand that it's a difficult road for fans to, to navigate these days. Um, I don't have great advice for fans navigating that um, other than to say, I think that it's the right move. College sports, big time college sports have exploited athletes for decades. Um, they, and again, maybe I'm just skewed because I've been front and center in front of Ohio state for 30 years here in Columbus, Ohio, but it is a gigantic institution. It is a huge business, no matter what people say about amateurism, no matter what people say about any of that stuff. It is a business and it is a sophisticated business and it has used these players and has put them through a meat grinder for a couple of years. And then it discards them for the most part. A few hang around and they get jobs where they're, you know, sign autographs. If you're if you're Kirk Herbstreet, you do OK. If you're uh, the second string running back who had a couple of big games that were important in 2004, you're, you're mincemeat. No one cares. You know, maybe you can show up at a local convention and sign an autograph or two, but you are discarded. Um, that was a system that could not exist any longer. It still exists to a large degree, but I'm glad to see that it is being dismantled a little bit. Again, I know that makes it hard if you're a sports fan. There are people that have built their entire lives in towns like this and in towns like Ann Arbor and Tuscaloosa and, uh, you know, wherever um, around the culture of the big time sports team college sports team uh that's not sustainable and if you scratch below the surface of that there's a lot of toxicity below it so I'm, I'm happy to see it upended even if it turns into a mess ideally the nfl could be in the business of developing its own talent rather than outsourcing it to colleges and everybody getting rich at the expense of athletes whose bodies get broken and they get thrown away yeah i would say that the nfl is essentially the the last of the four big ones to not have some sort of a the nba is virtually there now with with some of the g league and some of the um you know teams for folks to for kids to just get yeah and the best yeah, players yeah, young adults bypass to, it. um you know hockey has had it for years um and and certainly baseball has had it for years uh the fact that the nfl is able to continue to have this like wink wink nudge nudge relationship with the ncaa and it's certainly they're scratching each other's backs there's no doubt about it but it would be nice to have a true minor league system if there are student athletes who want to be student athletes, then go to Ohio state and be a student athlete. But if you want to be an athlete, if your goal is to be a professional football player, then there should be an Avenue or a pathway for you to do that as well. And well, not have, I have to a story. Deal yeah. I'll go ahead. I, I have a story. I, I didn't put it in the book cause I was worried about saying it and I won't use the player's name now just because you know, until the guy dies, I won't say anything. But when I was at Ohio state, there was a player on the Ohio State Buckeyes team who was my age, and he was in my sophomore composition class. Uh, and he was having great problems. And the professor um, asked me if I could help him. I was a decent student in that class. And he asked me if I could help him maybe do a little bit better. I'm like, yeah, sure. And I talked to him. He's a nice, nice guy. Um, but he was at Ohio State to play football. Uh, he eventually had an NFL career. Uh, and everybody knew at the time he was going to have an NFL career. Not, by the way, not a household name, not a Heisman Trophy type person. So you guys would probably guess 40 people who are at Ohio State between 1991 and 1995. You might not get to him, but he was an NFL player. 
uh, I helped him a little bit. He wasn't all that interested. And eventually what ended up happening is I ended up writing his papers for him. Uh, no one told me to do it. I wasn't ordered. It was sort of nudge, nudge. Could you do it? And I didn't feel coerced. I sort of at the time did it because I thought it was kind of fun. But I also did it because I thought then this guy is here just like I am. I'm at college to get my education and then go get a job doing something. He is here to play football and go get a job playing football. And he is benefiting Ohio State more than I am. Uh, who am I to not let this guy do it? And why do we have this silly idea that he has to maintain some certain grade point average so he could go play football in the NFL? It doesn't seem like it should be a job requirement for that. So there was a, I mean, I know it was academically dishonest. I know it was a, a problem. Uh, but if if I didn't help him, somebody else would have. But if no one helped him, he might have flunked out. He might have been on academic probation. Maybe he doesn't go to the NFL. He has a successful life now. He's not a multimillionaire, but he turned his modest NFL career into a business in the local area around where he played. Uh, and he has a life that he never would have had if not for football. Yeah. I have no problem with that, the part I played in that whatsoever, because it's a system that is absolutely stupid. And uh, and knowing how stupid that system is, uh, and knowing that it required my act of academic dishonesty to make it happen, tells you how dumb it is, because this guy's life changed, because he was able to play in college football. So I don't know, I, I just think it's dumb. And I, I hope it gets blown up in certain ways to the point where we actually have a D league for the NFL. Yeah, it would be I, I, it's long overdue and certainly the NFL can fund it. I think they have the they have, they have the capital to make a go of that. It, it would certainly be upsetting for people in Ann Arbor and State College and Columbus and stuff because it would definitely change the culture there. But you know what? You're going to just have to change your bar from the scarlet and gray to something else. Yeah, well, and and I have this ongoing debate with a, a friend of mine who was a longtime basketball coach at Rochester used to be Rochester College, now Rochester University here in Rochester, Michigan. Uh, Garth Pleasant um, has won several small division titles, NAIA Division II or whatever. And, you know, we go back and forth on this all the time. And, and I believe that as long as the the level of competition is similar and the games are competitive, I don't know that anybody's going to miss, you know, not having the five-star recruit in the backfield or under center. Um, and I certainly don't think it would be the case if, you know, you know, the five-star recruit or what have you didn't go to the, to Duke for a year because they wanted to go to whatever. I, Football, I, think, is, I think would yeah. work for that because yeah. it's player against player, right? It's not player against the environment so much. So if yeah. you have equally matched teams, but they're at a lower level than what we have now, you're still getting entertaining football. I think baseball might be hard because there's a difference between a guy throwing 94 and a guy throwing 79, <laughs> Or if a guy can't hit the ball 400 feet, well, that's a problem. But I think you could do it in football. I think you can do it in basketball as well. I mean, there's go watch a, a high school basketball game between some couple of high level schools, and it's amazingly entertaining. It's no different than watching a college game or something or an NBA game, as long as everybody's sort of equally matched. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm a I'm a Hulu streamer, so with the ESPN bundle, so I have access to the Northwoods league, which, oh, is the, yeah. which is a college. And it's, I mean, some of the games are not the best, but occasionally I'll tune in and it'll be a three, two game heading to the ninth inning. And I want to see the end of the game, you know, because, yeah. because they're all about the same and the level of competition is decent. I don't, don't necessarily know the players, but it's enjoyable because as a fan of baseball, I like to see the way the game will turn out. Yep. So it'll yeah. be painful getting there though. <laughs> it will be. Um, so Tell us a little bit about the newsletter, a cup of coffee. Um, yeah. It, what, what, what should um, folks who subscribe plan to see there? So part of the, the impetus for cup of coffee is similar to the impetus of the book, but um, uh, I didn't realize it until after the fact the, the the premise of cup of coffee is that people have lives and they're not going to be able to spend 13 hours a day following baseball. It's primarily baseball. Um, I think about myself before I was a baseball writer, I worked in an office and I would in the morning try to catch up on everything that happened in the sports and then I would have to click away and then I would have to do my job. I write cup of coffee as a newsletter that shows up in your inbox by 7 a.m. every morning and every day during the season, you get a recap of the night's games before, little little summaries with some humor and some insight. Uh, 
a, a general survey of the biggest stories in baseball that happened the day before or are going on right now. Hey, the draft happened yesterday. Who's here's who went first? Uh, this is what's going on right now. So-and-so got traded. So-and-so is hurt. And then I have some stuff at the end. That's just fun. I'll write about my family. I might write about some current events or a movie or something. And the idea is to get everything you need to know about baseball uh, in the time that it takes you to drink your first cup of coffee. Um, you can get it at 7 a.m. You can be done reading it by 7, 16 a.m. And you are completely caught up and you don't have to do that thing where you're listening to talk radio all day or, or refreshing ESPN.com or whatever. Um, that's who I write it for. I write it for the fans who are okay with that. So it's a, a sort of a summary newsletter of uh, the baseball goings on of the world. And it goes on even during the off season because there is no off season in most sports, as we all know now. Um, and I try to be funny. I try to be a little insightful. I definitely have a point of view with it. Uh, but it, for the most part, it's a friendly and funny sort of a situation. And we have a very active comment section of longtime readers. And uh, it's just a, a good way to keep up in a low pressure kind of way. And did I did I see recently that there was some sort of an informal or unsanctioned meetup of yeah, cup of coffee yeah. subscribers? I one of one of my readers who lives in Minneapolis was like, "Hey, I want to do a meetup. Can you advertise it in the in the newsletter?" And you did, and they just they got like fifteen to twenty readers together that all showed up for a Twins Tigers game in uh, in Minneapolis uh, just because they're like people that have been reading the newsletter for a few years and they talk to each other in the comments and a community is formed uh, with the newsletter and they just wanted to do it. I had nothing to do with it. I didn't go. I didn't set it up. I didn't instigate it. I probably will now that I saw that it worked. I was afraid I would do that once and no one would show up, but man, I got people. So um, it's fun. I, I've got commenters who, because I worked for NBC for years. I wrote the the baseball blog, hardball talk at NBCSports.com, And so I've readers have go back with me to like 2007, 2008 I, there, there's a couple that met in my comment section that got married and like moved across the country to live with each other. It's, it's, it's really crazy. And I just, I don't take credit for that kind of thing, but I, I do, you know, I'm happy that I created a positive environment where people can both enjoy sports, learn about sports, talk about sports, but also can just be a, a good sort of experience for them. Uh, so that's what I try to do. And it's uh, we publish five days a week, uh, Monday through Friday. Sometimes I'll do an occasional weekend one, but not often because I have a life. And uh, uh, it's you know seven bucks a month for you know all those newsletters or seventy dollars a year. And uh, it's putting my kids through college, so I think it's working. Great. Well, Craig, I cannot thank you enough for your time today. It's been a a, a real gift uh, to have you with us. Um, have I missed anything? Was there anything else in the book that I really should have touched on that I completely? blue and and did not get to we talked about me far more than anyone needs to talk about me in my work so no i think we hit it all well hey thanks again um really appreciate it and uh, look forward to continuing to, to see what's happening next i really appreciate the time uh, thank you for having me on conversations with sports fans is a production of the sports fan project our theme music is, fittingly, entitled Wooden Championships by Lobo Loco. Please visit our website at thesportsfanproject.com for more information and to contact us. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with other sports fans you know and invite them to give it a listen.